how, like, you've, I've watched tonight you interviewed by about, I don't know, 20 or 30 different media outlets. Do you not get bored? Is, is there a cut-off point where you're like, I've had enough? No, this is for them. This is the part that is driving me out of the game. I can't stand all the, the, the media outlets now. It's too much. And I understand that we've got to drive, like, all these different, like, uh, platforms and stuff. Now. Yeah, you've got to sell yeah. ourselves and stuff, but... I done that from the get go. I clocked that as soon as I started boxing. I clocked the game, and um, I feel like I wanted to be in a position where you can build up so much that you don't have to do so much. Yeah, like less is more. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's expectation because the platform has been built, so it's like you want that person on that platform. So, and when you're on that platform, it's like, oh, that's what's taking the fun out of the game. Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where, sadly, I don't think Anthony Joshua's going to do the numbers for all of us that we thought he would. Um, there's definitely a, a declining value of our, of our key asset in boxing, which I don't celebrate because I wish everyone the best. And generally speaking, I think you should get out of the sport what you put in. Now, if you've listened to the previous episode, you'll know that was my my intuitive feel uh, having watched the fight I've had. I've had the best part of the rest of the weekend to reflect on that. Um, obviously, you know, with the fasting and whatnot, you know, your mind's never really clear. Um, so I thought, let me just have a, let me have a, a more rounded crack at things now that sort of everything's been surfaced that needs to be surfaced. So the first thing I want to touch on is the, the pro-AJ versus anti-AJ debate that always seems to rear its head when we're in these situations, right? People go, oh, you're just a Joshua hater or you're just a, a Joshua fanboy. Here's the thing. How are we measuring Anthony Joshua? Because we need, we need to have a, a consistent start point, right? And then measure his career against that. If you, if you say, and I believe this, Anthony Joshua is a supercharged Derek Chisora, yeah? Came out the same Finchley factory, similar ideas, equally basic, um... Equally difficult to train, it would it would appear. And then I'm like, okay, cool. If you measure him as a supercharged Derek Chisora, everything Joshua's done in his career is incredible. Right? There's, there's no debating that. He's been unified world champion. He's lost those belts. He's won them back. He's defended them again. You know, he's lost them. He's fought in rematches. And now he's back, right? There's no debating that's a better career than than Derek's had. And I, I give Derek credit for putting himself in harm's way more, more times than not. But you you benchmark Joshua against being a supercharged Jasora and his career is nothing short of a fairy tale. That is what we should have got. That is exactly how he should have been sold because you could have always marketed Anthony Joshua as the underdog. You could have always said, listen, this guy's fighting the odds, he's fighting history, he's fighting convention, 
and if he wins one world title, then he would have defied the odds. And we would have bought into that, I think, comfortably. And that's kind of where it was pre-Olympics. So pre-Olympics, it was, this guy's come out of nowhere. Limited experience, all heart, all tension, all aggression, determination. And, and I remember like he'd be a regular contributor to the, to the Steve Bunce Boxing Hour on radio, BBC Radio London, which for me is the original boxing podcast, by the way. So, like, if someone says to me that the, the ground zero for boxing podcasting is that Steve Bunce show, and a lot, a lot of people sleep on that, but it was very important because that showed that you could have compelling boxing content basically narrated by Steve and maybe a couple of mates here and there. And if anyone ever listened to that, you'll know what I mean. Some of you newer fans won't understand, but maybe they've got them in the archive somewhere. They were really good. And on those times, we were always like, Joshua's the underdog, Joshua's the underdog. And you'd meet AJ at shows. And like I said, he's fought two of my mates. And so I've met Joshua. And he's a good guy. Like, in that sense, well, I say then he was a good guy. Like, you could talk about all sorts of stuff. He was clued up. And he'd always say, I don't want to make the mistakes of the past. So I see a lot of old Femi in Anthony Joshua now. But that guy, we always thought... He's always going to be up against it. He's taken the sport up too late. Like, at the time, it was like, if he gets to British level after the Olympics, fair play to him. No one had thought of him as a, a guy that would, would cause havoc at world level. No one did. Because it's like, can you imagine him against Klitschko? No, nah, he'd get hurt. And so he, he wins the Olympic gold. And however you want to slice and dice it, there are at least three controversial decisions. I think, I think the Lara fight was disgusting. Not the Lara fight. Sorry, I called him Elisandi Lara. Um, Elisandi Savon was, was a shocker. Um, I also think the Camarelli was debatable as well. But he gets the gold. Once he pals up with Matchroom, it gets stupid. Right, And then we hit the, the hyperbole stage. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's this. He's that. And from being someone who would have been a supercharged Chisora, and we would have been like, fantastic, cool. Let's, let's ride this wave and see where it takes us. Now we're hearing he could be a better version of Mike Tyson. He'll achieve more than Lennox Lewis. He'll unify all the belts. He'll go his whole career undefeated. So you've positioned Anthony Joshua in the public's mind as being this monster that no one can, no one can figure out, no one can defeat, and he tucks his mum into bed every night. Yeah, that's how, that's how Joshua's positioned by... This is all by Eddie Hearn and Matchroom, and Joshua's done nothing to refute this. He hasn't confirmed, he hasn't denied it, but this is what was sold to the public in general. So that's their expectation. You remember all of the, the Road to Undisputed talk, all the talk, even before that, when they were talking about we want to get Joshua as Deontay Wilder's mandatory. We feel we, he can beat Wilder easily. We went from that to none of these fights happening. And so over time, the public got disillusioned because we kept getting hit with the same message and we're seeing with our own eyes this guy's not that good. He's good and measured against the supercharged Chisora. Oh, he's really good. But measured against the, he's the best of his generation, he's miles away from that. Miles. 
both from a talent perspective and a willingness to put himself in harm's way. He's miles off that. So I say to all you people, whatever side of this line you're on, you have to understand that if you measure Joshua as being a supercharged Derek Chisora, Joshua's done incredibly. There's no debating that. You measure him against what Hearn told us to believe, which is this guy's the best heavyweight of his generation. Nah, he's been a bust in that sense. So it depends on what side of that line you are. What I will say in Joshua's defense is, if Joshua was like this 10 years ago, he'd comfortably be the second best heavyweight on the planet. This version of Joshua we saw on Saturday would be the second best heavyweight on the planet. So he's also being handicapped by being in an era where suddenly everyone got dangerous. Because if you look at this era, a lot of guys have freak factor to them, right? So let's look at it like this. In terms of overall boxing talent and IQ, we can say Tyson Fury's a freak. Punch power, Deontay Wilder's a freak. Pace and engine, Alexander Usyk is a freak. Chin and kind of monster factor, Joe Joyce is a freak. Is Gilles Zhang a freak for his chin and maybe his power? We'll find out. But there are people who've got freak factor to them. Um, Jared Big Baby Anderson, he may be one of these guys who's got that kind of freak factor in terms of combination and IQ. All of these guys have things that we, we are happy to accept make them freaks in the division. What has Anthony Joshua got that's freakish? Freakish chin? No. Freakish boxing IQ? No. Freakish talent? No. Freakish power? No. Freakish strength? No. Jermaine Franklin was able to hold his own on the inside. So Anthony Joshua has nothing that makes him a freak. Absolutely nothing. And that lends credence to the point that he's a supercharged Chisora. He's a guy that's taken loads of really good bits, some okay bits, and he's made them into a boxer. And kudos to him. But that's not what we were sold. That wasn't what Eddie Hearn was selling when he was packing out the O2. And then when he was packing out stadiums. And then when he was off in Saudi. This isn't what we were sold. And someone had to say, can we just pull back from this rhetoric because it's doing Anthony Joshua more harm than good. Joshua's losing fans not because he's, he's not delivered on who and what he is, because he more than has done. It's because he hasn't delivered on what his promoter said he'd deliver. And his promoter made us pay through the nose to observe this. And this brings me to something that Anthony Joshua said that I take real issue with. So Anthony Joshua said... In 15 years' time, no one's going to remember this fight. And that's something you can say when you're the man that made millions from it. You leave the O2 richer than when you arrived. Eddie Hearn leaves the O2 richer than when he arrived. Some of those journalists, depending on whether they hit their numbers or not, will leave richer than they arrived. Do you know who's not going to leave richer than they arrived? The boxing fan. The guy that paid two grand for a seat. The guy that paid a hundred quid for a seat. It doesn't matter which one you're talking about. They're the ones that aren't going to leave richer. Even the ones on the freebie tickets, all 6,000 of you. You're not leaving richer. 
because you bought drinks and you bought food and you paid your transportation costs. So when you say no one's going to remember the fight, what you're basically saying is I don't care about the fans because the fans didn't show up to see Jermaine Franklin go the distance because that's not what they were sold. What they were sold was this. Anthony Joshua handpicked an opponent in collaboration with his team and his trainer. This is what Eddie said. Eddie said this. They're choosing a fighter that is going to showcase the work that Anthony Joshua is doing with his trainer, Derek James. That's what we were told. When we asked, would it be Otto Wallen? Probably not. And then when we started to hear that it was Jermaine Franklin, we were told, Joshua needs someone he can look good against. Because he's with a new trainer, and they're going to try and work on some things. But Anthony Joshua's career is hanging in the balance, and he needs a strong performance. That's what we were told. And everyone was clear, a strong performance means Jermaine Franklin gets stopped. A very strong performance means he gets stopped in under six. They won't remind you that they were saying this. They won't remind you this was the message two weeks ago. Those guys like you know, Darren Barker who talk like they got marbles in their mouth. And That's what they were all saying. So when we saw what we saw on Saturday, that's not what we were promised. That's not what people paid their zone subscription for. That's not what people pay their ticket, their ticket prices for. That's not what people pay their transportation costs for. That's not what people got special outfits for. That's not what people got their cocaine out for. They got it out for a knockout. So when Anthony Joshua says no one's going to remember this fight in 15 years, what he's saying is, I have contempt for the fans. You can say as much as you like you're disappointed you didn't get the knockout. No, why didn't you get the knockout? Maybe you're not that good. Is that what we've got to start saying? Is that what he's got to start saying? Or is that what eats away at him every night? Is, is that realization that he's not that good? Because whatever you want to say, he understands this game. He's been at the top of it long enough. He understands this game. The guys at the top always have something about them that is 10 out of 10. He has nothing about him that is 10 out of 10. We used to give him credit for his mindset and his drive and his will to win. And we haven't seen those since the Klitschko fight. So what are we giving him for going 12 rounds with Jermaine Franklin? And his defense was Mike Tyson went 12 rounds with uh, Tony Tucker and Pinklin Thomas. Tony Tucker and Pinklin Thomas are not... <laughs> are not Jermaine Franklin. They are monsters in a completely different orbit and stratosphere to Jermaine Franklin. That's no disrespect to Jermaine Franklin. Those guys just came from a far harder time. Those are guys who grew up in the heroin and crack era in the United States. Those are guys who grew up seeing things that you'd only normally see in a war zone. And it's generally accepted that Mike Tyson, much like Joshua, was oversold to us. And much like Joshua, as soon as they found someone to stand up to him and say, I'm going to take your best shot and hit you with mine. Everything shattered like glass. 
And all it was after that Buster Douglas fight, let's be honest, after that Buster Douglas fight, it was how much money can we accumulate before this, this whole thing implodes. That's what we had. That's what Joshua is. Joshua's another fighter who got exposed and the moment they were exposed, they were never the same again. And I don't take joy in that, by the way. And I know what people will be listening to is going, what do you mean he got exposed? Once Andy Ruiz stood up to him and said, not only am I going to stand up to you in that attritional way, I'm going to impose myself on you. He was never the same man after that. Because remember the rematch, he never went after Ruiz. He never sought to establish against Ruiz that he was the man. He was the stronger man. He was the better man. He never tried to impose himself on Ruiz. He was just glad to get out of dodge with the win. He thought he could do that with Usyk as well. Usyk learned the lessons from the past and said, I want to make sure I'm ready the second time around. And once again, a smaller man stood up to him. On Saturday night, another small man stood up to him. At some point, Anthony Joshua is going to have to face a big man that will stand up to him and impose himself on Anthony Joshua. And that may, be, that may be incredibly sad to watch, and maybe we don't want to see that. But I'm going to come back to this point. If you believe Anthony Joshua is a supercharged Derek Chisora, we should all be proud of what he achieved. If you believe that Eddie Hearn hype, and a lot of you did, that this man was Superman, he was the person to rescue boxing and to bring in a new era where it was always going to be competitive fights, then Anthony Joshua has been an absolute disaster. It's as simple as that. You just choose your side and commit to it. But let's talk about some of the sort of the themes that come out of that, that, that whole evening, right? What was Tony Bell you doing? Can somebody explain to me why Tony Bell you ran the length of the ring to kick off with Jermaine Franklin's corner? From what I could see, Jermaine Franklin's corner were doing what they should do and they were protecting their man from aggression after the fight was done. Why was Tony Bellew running over? Not only did Bellew run over, if you remember, you can see this clearly with Carl Froch's, you know, Froch camp. Bellew initiates the aggression because they're not even paying attention to Bellew. Like, why would they? <laughs> I mean, he's not involved in the fight. And Bellew starts shouting at them, calling them out, trying to kick off. And they're like, quite right, like, who are you? What have you got to do with this? And, you know, Bellew had been less than complimentary. And I imagine they heard this because they get a feed, don't they? They get a broadcast feed in, into the changing rooms. So I imagine they've heard what Bellew said and gone, who is this clown anyway? Then Bellew starts piping up and they're like, isn't that the guy from Creed? What's he doing here? Where's Michael B. Jordan? Where's Jonathan Majors? We just got pretty Ricky Conlon here talking nonsense. And he's just there making a whole heap of noise. And it goes to show that as much as we want to respect these boxers for being tough guys, they've got a little bit of bitch in them too. Because what Bellew looked to be doing was just showing Eddie Hearn how much of a true matchroom soldier he is and showing Joshua how much of a femi soldier he is and that he will always be there to do Joshua's bidding or Eddie Hearn's bidding. It was like he was doing too much. Far too much. Why? 
he ran across the ring like the security guys had it under control. So like Bellew just thought, well, you know, yeah, yeah, they're five security guys, but I'm Tony Bellew. I mean, like, I'm the guy that fought a broken David Haight twice. I can handle this comfortably. I'm sure those the Franklin's guys were like, ain't that the guy that was scared of Adonis Stevenson? Oh, God, man, we, we'll chew this guy up for breakfast. Imagine these guys come from Detroit, Michigan, wherever it is they come from. They're looking at Bell. You're like, you're the guy that cried when you lost to Nathan Cleverly. You just cried. We don't take you seriously. But Bellew's made a name for himself this week, hasn't he? Just by digging his own grave. Like, Connor Ben's innocent is this, is that. And this is why the camera crew are so toxic. Because they give a platform to guys like this. He gets to just spew out whatever he wants to, as long as it pleases the Empire. I was glad to see that Dave Caldwell, for, for a change, just didn't read the script and actually spoke from the heart and spoke as the experienced trainer that he is. Unfortunately, Tony Bellew is unable to do that. And I guess that David Haymoney hasn't gone as far as he thought it would. But doesn't this make you guys wonder, as, as fellow boxing fans, how much money does Hearn really pay people? Because the way he talks, he always talks like he's given people enough money to be set up for life. But just look, you've still got Bellew hovering around with his nose in the trough. You've still got Delboy just, just sucking the life out of every interview that there is going. Like, <laughs> he, he, he just can't, he can't, can he? It's like, do you remember in the old days, you'd always see Chris Evans in the tabloids? It didn't matter who was out on the piss. Danny Baker, Chris Evans would be there. Paul Gascoigne, Chris Evans would be there. Um, whoever, whoever it was, like the Gallagher's, Chris Evans would be there. And Chisora's become that guy that just appears in everything. And I look and I go, but we get told that you've made a ton of money. You're seeing Kel Brook come back. And you're like, then you guys make enough money. But then you don't see Froch really all up in their business. And he looks like a guy that has made his money. It's the same with Dillian. These guys look like guys who have made their money. And they're like, yeah, we're okay. But I do wonder, how much are you really getting paid at Matchroom for you to still be hanging around, sniffing around and just, oh, man, just sucking the fun out of things. And that was the theme. Like, the Matchroom guys were confused, right? Because they'd been talking bullishly about what he was going to do. And I was like, okay, cool, let's see what he does. And then you had a fight which was essentially a nothing. And they're telling us that we need to focus on the positives. And I'm like, well, what positive? And they're like, yeah, his jab was good. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't that good. You know? Franklin, Franklin was, I think Franklin just got to a point where he wasn't getting hurt by these punches. So he just thought, now if I catch a jab, it's all right, so long as I can hit him back with two or three more. And so, oh man, I'm watching this fight, and I'm seeing this, so there's a jab. Oh, the body work was fantastic. I'm like, no, it wasn't. If you go back to prime AJ, AJ's ability to go to the body was better then than it is now. His jab was better then than it is now. His one-two was better then than it is now. This is an Olympic gold medalist. Now, if you, even if you don't want to accept he deserved the gold medal, here's a guy who fought in every tournament in a two-year span and was there or thereabouts. I'd like to think he knows a lot about boxing, and this is why we need to park all of this he's learning on the job nonsense. What exactly is he learning on the job? 
to punch? No. Well, he's learning to make good decisions in the ring. If you can't do it now, you'll never do it. So what is he learning on the job? Bearing in mind at this point in his life, Tony Bellew was fighting, who was it, BJ Flores? Was Bellew learning on the job? No. At this point in his life, who was Chisora fighting? Senad Gashi? Was he learning on the job? No. There's a certain age where you've got to say someone's an adult. They're not learning on the job anymore. And you can't headline a show if you're learning on the job. All of this stuff that they tell you as fans and you just believe, oh, he's just learning on the job. He's not learning on the job. What's he learning? He's been learning on the job for the last God knows how many years. What has he learned? Because he's gone backwards. He's gone backwards. It's like he did his A-levels in 2017 and now we're talking about he's got to go back to key stage three. Why? Why can't we accept it? Maybe he's just not that bright. That's it. He ain't that bright. When it comes to boxing, maybe he's just not that good. And what he did is he exhausted the possibilities of what having loads of muscle and a bit of charisma can do in a relatively flat and aging heavyweight division. The right man at the right time. And what this does is it overshadows something we should be applauding. We should be applauding Jermaine Franklin. The fact that Jermaine Franklin has made himself a millionaire by doing nothing other than existing. He existed in box at the right time and he's made himself a millionaire. And he's probably still got one more big fight left because Matchroom normally do these things in threes. But one thing that impressed me about Jermaine Franklin is he had that kind of hard man interior. Maybe not the exterior because he doesn't look like he can go. But he had that thing of someone who'd been through stuff. Is that like inner, inner steel? Like, like there's an inner hardness to him that you don't get from Joshua. Just that inner hardness that says, I'm prepared to fight at any time. And he, he grew on me. He's a really likable guy. And he's the sort of guy that I'd like to see in a fight where he stands more of a chance. Why can't we have Jermaine Franklin versus Michael Hunter? You know, you could do that here. And I think the British public will get behind that because we know what Michael Hunter can do. And now we know what Franklin can do. So we know it's a good benchmark fight. And having seen the refing performance and the judging performances when Jermaine Franklin's fought before, I'm sure he doesn't trust the Brits. And I don't blame him. But he's carried himself a class... He's a guy who, who leaves this country with his reputation enhanced. Prove that he's as hard as they come. Because remember, he jumped in with two Brits that we were calling real punches. Knockout artists. Guys who should be doing damage at world level. That's what we said. There were people who thought Dillian could knock out Tyson Fury. And there are people who think AJ can knock out Tyson Fury. Jermaine Franklin has been there. And as far as I'm concerned, has barely looked troubled. Looked more troubled in the Dillian White fight than he did in the Joshua fight. So he leaves with his reputation enhanced. Even that, that, that set two in the ring. Which is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. So the story is that Joshua was trying to say a good fight. And Franklin was like, I didn't like what he said to me. And so Franklin goes up to him and goes, well, what did you say? And Joshua being Joshua and, you know, his fake tough guy mode. And then starts really trying to rumble with him. Now, here's the thing. 
You had 12 rounds to be that guy. Why weren't you that guy? And I think sometimes we have to be honest. I remember. I remember once I played rugby. And I moved clubs. And I played for a club called London Nigerians. And I remember going to the first training session. And watching some of those guys go through their moves. And everything was so fast and so intense and so aggressive. I remember like, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I remember when they said, you can sit this one out. And I was like, oh, thank God for that. And my spirits lifted again and I was all brave and tough and tough. And then I said to myself, oh, hold on. Why am I so happy that I'm not involved? This is what I do. This is what I do well. And I caught myself and I threw myself in there. But I understand that feeling of when you've survived the scary thing unscathed, when you thought, maybe I won't survive this, you get that euphoria, that bravery, and it can happen. And the way you overcome that is you just put yourself in harm's way and convince yourself, actually, when things get messy, I'm okay. And there's a courage that you need with that. And it looked like Joshua was scared of losing. He wasn't excited about winning. He wasn't excited about entertaining the fans. He looked like he was scared to lose against Franklin. And there were points in that fight where he felt that that may be a realistic option. And once the bell went and he realized he had left with his reputation intact and his record was better than it was before he started, then he started talking hard. He did the same with Usyk. All that tough talk came after the fight, but none of it was manifested in the fight. These are the marks of a bully. These are the hallmarks of a bully. A guy who shows up when it doesn't matter. But when, when, when things start getting crazy, he's tying his shoelaces. Or tries to be the peacemaker. I don't think Anthony Joshua's got that, that warrior spirit in him. And I contrast it with someone like a David Hay, who I think has got that. Remember what happened when Derek tried to stick it on David. Just remember the devastation David caused all on his own. That's someone who, who's willing to throw down. That's a, that's a, you, don't, you don't coach that. You don't learn that in the gym. You don't learn that bench pressing. You you. You grow up with that. And Joshua doesn't have it. And he's never needed to because he's just always been a big kid. So he's always had that intimidating factor just by existing. The problem with the heavyweight division is everyone's big. And they're used to dealing with big guys. So being big is no longer a deterrent. Now you've got to be a warrior too. Being strong ain't enough because everyone at that size is strong. Everyone can hurt at that level. But have you got that warrior spirit? Will your will give in before theirs will? And my fear for Anthony Joshua is if you put him in with someone of any ambition, with any real size and strength, 
he'll be found wanting. I think tactically, the fights are easier the taller the guys get because I think he will be able to tee off on bigger and slower guys. I think his kryptonite will always be small guys. But I think on the bigger guys, he stands a better chance. But you wouldn't put him in with a guy like Otto Wallen for this simple reason. It looks like Wallen may have an okay chin and he's got a really good engine. And my worry with Joshua would be that his morale would dip and he'd start to doubt himself. And then that's when he becomes vulnerable to certain shots and certain attacks. So what do you do if you're Joshua now? I think you just have, you call this the final lap and you just tick all the names off. However it goes, it goes, man. You fight Dillian. If you win, you carry on. If you lose, you just go, I don't have it anymore. And you just keep going until you get to a point where you can't carry on. You've made all the money you want. And then you, and I think Joshua will be a guy that will just go off and do other stuff. I just don't think he needs boxing. I don't think he, he doesn't love being involved in boxing in his current guys. Maybe there's another way he can do it. I don't know. Maybe the ambassadorial role works better for him. Because I think he loves boxing without loving the idea of getting punched anymore. And that's a real shame. Because you saw his team. And we'll come on to the training in a second. But you saw his team on fight night. Cunning him with his head in his hands. Because he understood. And it could be one of two reasons. It could be one, oh my God, we're going to get absolutely slaughtered on social media for this performance. Or it could be. I don't think we're going to make the money we think we're going to make. Because remember, Freddie Cunningham's the guy that's going to be getting the sponsors in. And if I'm a sponsor right now, I'm like, nah, Joshua's not what we thought he was. We're going to look at other athletes. Because there are other athletes that probably come in cheaper and have a higher profile and do more work. Because like I said, in between fights, you rarely see Joshua. You don't see much unless you follow him on Snapchat. So I don't know. I I look at it and I go, yeah, this is bleak for him. You know, and I don't want to overanalyze this, but it, it's not looking good. When Freddie Cunningham's got his head in his hands, when Dave Caldwell is telling you, nah, this ain't good enough, when Johnny Nelson's questioning your, your desire, when Spencer Fearon is struggling to be optimistic, the usual matchroom tub thumpers are struggling. Even Darren Barker struggled. It was hard. The crowd was subdued. And I contrast all of this with what happened later in that evening because I watched the first night of WrestleMania. And I saw that as, as an event. Far better. Why? Because they worked their assets. The WWE worked their assets. And their assets then build their own profiles. And that's how they're able to get into movies and to do other things. And that's why those guys are able to make money outside the ring too. Because they work every week. Boxers don't work every week. Simple fact. You know, I watched Rey Mysterio's entrance for WrestleMania. If you can find it on Twitter or YouTube, incredible moment. Um, I saw the Uso stepping out with Lil Uzi Vert. And I thought, you'd never get this in boxing. And Joshua and Matchroom are meant to be the high watermark of what's achievable in boxing. And we are nowhere near that. We're light years off that. Light years off that. But I'm getting sidetracked. One thing I wanted to talk about was... We've heard for years that there have been problems in the Joshua camp. And I've always said the problem with his camp is... 
he's got someone in KD, Le Malinois, who isn't a boxing person. Maybe he's an administrator and an organiser and stuff like that, but he's not a boxing person. And, and that camp never made sense to me. No matter how anyone chooses to slice and dice, that camp never made sense to me. So the question has to become, if, if you know your opponent is going to be Jermaine Franklin and you know that your fighter, Anthony Joshua, is susceptible to smaller guys, why wouldn't you have a camp full of smaller guys? Peter Kadiru looks like he's big. He looks like he's a 6'4", 6'5 guy. Jamie Shakira is 6'3", 6'4", maybe 6'4". And then that leaves Brian Jennings. Even Brian Jennings is about 6'2", but Brian Jennings is not getting any younger. I'd be, I'd be surprised if they weren't looking at other options. Like, this is surely the camp you bring someone like a Timothy Moten in. This is the camp where you might bring Michael Hunter in. You know, what, I, it defies all logic. Because the lads they brought in aren't really what I'd call pure counterpunchers. You know, counterpunchers are pretty hard. You'd almost even want to get cruiserweights in and say, right, let's just get a few cruisers in for that work rate and just being able to handle smaller guys. Because if Joshua's problem is I can't handle smaller guys, then you get smaller guys in. It almost doesn't matter the tactical elements. Because remember, this is meant to be a showcase fight, so you shouldn't be worried about whether your opponent does this or does that, is how do you deal with smaller guys, AJ? How do you get your right hand in the right place? How do you get your uppercuts timed properly? And so the structure of the camp didn't make any sense. No idea how much Derek James had input into it, but it didn't look like a camp that I would have assembled, but then who the hell am I? And so that, that has knock-on effects, because then you look at the, the trainer, Derek James, and you go, okay, what do we expect Derek James to deliver for Anthony Joshua? If you ask most people in the street, they want Joshua to be slicker. Oh, he'd make him slicker, defensively sound. And I'm like, that's not what Derek James does. If you look at what Derek James does, it's really simple. It's just heavy artillery. Really basic defense, heavy artillery. But the reason he gets away with that, and I don't say that disrespectfully, by the way. I say that with the utmost respect because I'm a big Derek James fan. He's always recruited people with a really good mindset. They have that mentality. They're all hard men. They're tough guys. You know, Charlo's a tough guy. Errol Spence is a tough guy. Frank Martin is a tough guy. These are guys who, if they weren't boxing, you dread to think what they'd be doing. Yeah, you dread to think. They may, they may, they may have even recreated BMF. If Anthony Joshua wasn't boxing, I told you he'd be doing the door at Weatherspoons. Two differing orders of magnitude of toughness between those two groups. So the hope was whatever those guys had would rub off on Joshua. But I just don't think it's there in AJ. I really don't think it's there. And if it's not there, then the Derek James style is really, really hard to implement because those guys are, are savages. You know, if you look at Derek James's gym, what's it called? World Class Boxing Club or something. If you look at that, there's nothing in there. Like, it's literally like a, I don't even know, like a barn, like a barn conversion. And there's a ring and there's some bags and there's like a treadmill and some, there's little bits and bobs, but it's really simple stuff. But if you talk about like, 
like Derek James' signatures, lead hooks are key. The lead hook is key in terms of causing the most amount of trauma, physical and mental. That, that lead hook is key. And then the, the power hand, the backhand, becomes more effective at that point. But they're the sort of guys who break you down. They don't try and outbox you. There's no need to outbox you. They try and break you down. I didn't see Anthony Joshua trying to break down Jermaine Franklin. So when Joshua says, I know what I'm doing, I don't think he does. Because he's gone right back to what McCracken was about. Really basic combinations, really strong, really fit, well fit-ish, but nothing spectacular. He went from Robert McCracken, who was just belt and braces, really, really simple. Joshua respected him. To then, who was it? Angel. Angel and Joby. Disaster. Then Angel and Roberto Garcia. Disaster. To Derek James, who's essentially Robert McCracken in Texas. That's what it is. McCracken was in there. You know McCracken was in there watching Joshua's fight going, <laughs> I told you this would happen. I know McCracken was there. Like, you know, you ever had this before where you've gone out with someone and they've dumped you or you've dumped them, but there's been a breakup. And as you're walking around, maybe a year or two later, you see them. And you see the person they ended up with. And you know. You, you nah, nah, nah. That's definitely a few steps down for you. And you look at them. And you just look. And you look at them and go, I see who you're with. Was it worth it? And I imagine McCracken was like that watching the fight going, all of that talk, all of that listening to people get in your ear to perform like that? I don't think McCracken would ever produce a performance like that. And this is what I mean. Sometimes we, we over-sensationalize what the Americans can do. Derek James doesn't do a lot. He's just working with better raw materials. I still think he's a good trainer because you've still got to put in the work to get guys ready for fights. I'm never going to dispute that. That's a hard, hard job. But if you gave McCracken those Charlos and Errol Spence, I'm sure McCracken could make them world champions too. So my question back is, what did Joshua move for exactly? That's the real question. What did he move for? Did he move to get out of his comfort zone? And I know he's talked about how much he loves America and how much he loves Texas. Is he going to uproot and base himself there? I don't know. Would I recommend it? Not necessarily. Look, look how heavy he came back. Like That American food definitely got to him because I don't think he... He intended to be that big, but that American food can get to you like that. You know, some people some people say it was the eggs that did it. No comment. But what I would say though is I understand going with Derek James, but if you're gonna go with Derek James, you would have done it a lot sooner in your career. You know? Because I don't see the the gap between him and McCracken being that great. Because he's not Derek James isn't a guy with a really complex fight system. Not many people do. Sugar Hill Stewart, not a complex fight system. Not many. The good trainers don't have complicated ideas. It's really simple. 
But for Joshua to implement what Derek James is doing, his mindset has to change. And he has to be prepared to break people down and to hurt people. He can't be happy going, yeah, hit and don't get hit. That's not, not really their style. It's intimidate with brute force and then break them down. And when the penny drops with Joshua on that, in that, in that regard, then maybe we'll see the best of him. But to do that, he's going to have to overcome so many demons. Now, here's the thing I'll say. In all the times Joshua's been dropped, he's, been, he's got back up. So I don't know why he's scared of getting dropped. Because against Vlad, he, he came back and he proved that he's that guy. Against Ruiz, he didn't, admittedly. But that can happen. I wish someone would just get in Joshua's ear. Like if, if I was around Joshua, I'd say, mate, so what if you get, get put down? Are you prepared to get back up? Yeah. Are you prepared to go after once you're up? Yeah. And he might need the, the embarrassment of getting put down to bring out the best in him. I'll give you an example of this happened before at a lower level. Dominic Akinladi was boxing. Uh, who was it? Uh, was it Adam Mackay? You know, the guy that did SAS, Who Dares Wins? The guy that got done for steroids. I think it was Adam Mackay who dropped Dom, I think in the first or second round. And Dom came out because he, like Dominic doesn't get dropped. I don't think, I mean, he doesn't get dropped. He's not that sort of guy. And he was so embarrassed. He just came out firing. Stop the kid in the next round. Some people need that. Like you never got that performance out of Dominic until he got hurt, until someone embarrassed him or upset him. He was the sort of guy that once you upset him, he'd come after you. Maybe Joshua needs that. Maybe Joshua needs something. He needs... He needs some form of adversity would be my theory. And the reason I say that is he did really, really well when he had to prove the doubt was wrong. And then he sort of hit that peak with Vlad. And it seemed after that he never wanted to get put down again. And so he took any number of different fights, right? He took um, the Takam fight. He took the Parker fight, the Povetkin fight, like Takam, like I said, career sparring partner was aging anyway. Parker, the least deserving world champion I can think of. Povetkin was getting on a bit. There are loads of guys in his record who were getting on a bit and seen better days. And then Ruiz was meant to be one of those guys, a nice easy tune-up before bigger fights, and Ruiz upset that apple cart. And then it was never the same after that. He just took soft options like with Pulev, then he was forced to fight Usyk, who he would probably would have swerved if he had the choice. But here's why I'm going to defend Joshua, just, just for balance. You know, I part believe this, but I also part don't believe this. Who hasn't had duds in their career? Someone name me David Hayes' heavyweight run. Go through David Hayes' heavyweight run. You remember Vlad and you remember the two Bellew fights. You won't remember the Monty Barrett fight. Some might remember the John Ruiz fight. There are a load of David Hay fights that we, we forget happened. And we're like, eh. You know, his heavyweight run is not all that. Fury's heavyweight run is not all that. Deontay Wilder got slaughtered for years because of his heavyweight run. And it, it wasn't all that until it got serious. And I think if you look at his last... If you look at him post-2018, I think he's... He's done everything that's been asked of him, you know, to the best of his ability. But most of these guys have duds. 
like a long run of duds and underwhelming performances. Part of that is just what you get in the heavyweight division. But like I said, you can't give Joshua bail on this one because we were told that he's indestructible. And even when we saw with our own eyes that a little Mexican guy battered him, we were told, nah, he's still the best in the world. And as long as Eddie Hearn keeps lying to the fans like this, Joshua's going to have to carry this weight and it's this weight that cripples him. So what gives? Does Joshua say to Eddie, you've got to stop talking for me? But then Eddie's like, how are we going to make our money? So I think, if I were to break down where I think he's struggling, I think Joshua's struggling because he doesn't believe that if he gets put down, he'll get back up again. Although everything to date would suggest that he would. Right? That's what we know. He'd get back up. There's no question about that. I also think he's caught between who he wants to be as a boxer and who he actually is. And I think he needs to go back to who he actually is. Just a big lump who throws loads of punches, and if it works, it works. He's not a KO artist, because when's the last time Joshua left someone sleeping on the canvas? We know when Wilder did it, and we know when Fury did it. But we don't know when Joshua last did it, because we can't even remember those guys. They weren't that good. So once he realizes he's not that guy, that's okay. That will free him up too. But there's also the thing about Anthony Joshua. Who are you really? Who are you really? Who is Anthony Joshua? What do you believe in? What's your personal life like? What's your real life like? Are you living congruently? Is who you are in public similar to who you are in private? Or are you hiding secrets from us that you don't want us to know? Is that why the circle's so tight? Because all of these things are just weight that, that you carry into the ring. The less of these things you carry into the ring, the better you'll perform. So what I will say is, yes, Joshua had an absolute stinker on Saturday, but it's a stinker relative to what we were promised. Not an objective stinker. Because, like I said, many of these guys have had duds in their careers. Come on, man, I'll leave four guys like Chuck Wepner. You know, let's, let's have a sense of perspective here. You know, Mike Tyson fought guys like Mitch Blood Green. Everyone's got their, their duds. That's okay. But what all those guys were able to do was have the big fights and prevail in those big fights. And hopefully, Anthony Joshua can free himself of all the baggage that's holding him back and have a good crack at those. Because I maintain this. Boxing is better when AJ's on top. Yeah? That's when we need our numbers back. Because I need, I need my, my casual subscribers back, man. I need those guys to come back. But that's what I would say in closing. All the things Anthony Joshua needs to do require nothing more than a mirror. And if he finds that mirror, he may find old Femi back. And on that note, I'll say take care, guys, and have a great week, positive week. And as always, you know, you have the option to, to share this, co-op people, recruit people, and let's get some more, let's get some more supporters behind the movement. You take care.